this is related to what I'm going to teach you today. This little handout is on the table in the atrium, um, I think right by the center pillar. And this is my explanation of how you can understand how the Philistines became the Palestinians. And I went to considerable lengths to spell this out in writing to help you. There were 500 of them before the first service. I'm not sure how many are left now. So if you're interested, it will help you to understand where we're going with what we're about to look at. I'm going to pray with you, and then we're going to step into this. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for what we are about to explore and for how it will speak into our life. We do yield to you as the teacher, as our guide, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will illuminate because that's what you do. You help us to see you in ways that we haven't seen you before, and thereby you help us to see ourselves, to understand who we are before you. I pray that you would do exactly that, that you would teach us and show us how to respond. We pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. If you're new to New Hope, welcome, by the way, glad that you're here. Um, If you're new to New Hope, we're working through a series called E2E. And we started in the book of Genesis. We're working all the way to the book of Revelation. We happen to be in 1 Samuel this morning. So if you have an electronic device or you have a hard copy of the Bible, you can follow along that way. You'll see the verses on the screen. But we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And when I realized where we were going with this, I'll tell you the imagery that popped in my mind was Isaiah chapter 6. And if you're not real familiar with the Bible, here's the setting. The king of the nation has died. His name is Uzziah. And Isaiah says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne. He says, he uses the word, high and lofty, seated upon his throne. And the very next phrase he uses is this, The train of his robe filled the temple. Now, in the ancient world, the length of a king's robe or the train of his robe indicated the greatness of that king. Isaiah says, I saw God on his throne, and the train of his robe was so massive, it filled the entire temple. But then he goes on to say that I heard and saw seraphim flying above the throne, and they cried out, holy Holy, holy. As R.C. Sproul likes to say, to the third superlative. Not holy, not holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. And there's very few times in the Bible when something is declared holy, holy, holy. Nothing surpasses it. That goes to my mind when we look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, because we're about to talk about the Ark of the Covenant and how it was to be revered as the holy representation of God on planet Earth. So I want you to see a quote that's going on the screen. It's in your notes this morning, and it relates to the Ark of the Covenant. In the 1970s, during an archaeological dig, a clay tablet known as an ostracon was discovered in an uh, early Iron Age grain silo. And this is the imprint that was upon that clay tablet. Unto the field we came, unto Aphek from Shiloh. The Katim took it, the Ark of the Covenant, and came to Azor, to Dagon, Lord of Ashdod, and to Gath, 
it returned to Kiriath Jerim. This particular clay tablet is held at St. Andrew's University as a, a treasure because it's the earliest known extra-biblical account of an event from the Old Testament, and it specifically is talking about what you're about to look at in 1 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant. And that statement you're looking at dates back to 1100 to 1200 B.C. From today's account in 1 Samuel 5-7, you're going to see that many people who merely even looked at the Ark of the Covenant were killed instantly. And the priest knew that you were supposed to handle it with kid's glove in order to treat it holy, 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 they weren't even supposed to look at the ark. Yet last week, we saw it being carelessly treated as though it was a, a cannon that they could just aim at someone and use on the battlefield. And so we find verse 10, just to remind you where we left off at in chapter 4, we get this. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great. Stop right there for a moment. The phrase that's used is mehod megas which is not a common term in the Bible in Hebrew. Mehod megas, very great. It's, it's talking about vehemently excessive megas, over-the-top slaughter. And then he goes on to say, For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So even though the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant is present, this defeat is far more severe than even the previous battle they were in, and we're told there was a slaughter, makal, which is the exact same word used of the Egyptians when God brought the plagues against them. So they sustain these heavy losses. The outcome is precisely what God said would happen. And no sooner does the battle end on the battlefield and this catastrophic news reaches Shiloh where Eli, the high priest, is sitting and waiting for the news to be reported because he knows that the Philistines will stop at nothing to gain control of the Ark of the Covenant. And so therefore, as we saw last week, he is trembling with fear. Here it is in verse 17. The one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. When he mentioned the Ark of, the, of God, Eli fell off the seat backwards beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. And the shock of hearing that the Ark of God is gone is too much. Now, for you and I to comprehend what you've just seen and what you're about to look at, we have to understand something. We have to understand something about these developments. In the mind of the Philistines and in the mind of the Israelites, the battle is actually between the God of Israel and Dagon, their God, small g, I always want to emphasize that, their God, so we really need to understand who these Philistines are. That's the reason I printed that little document for you that's out on that table when you go out the door this morning that you help you to understand these individuals. At the heart of this story 
is this terrifying action that's carried out by God himself without any human intervention whatsoever. In other words, the holy, holy, holy God himself is about to act as a warrior just as he did against the people of Egypt. So there's a really strong principle coming out of this story. It's very hard to hear if you live in 2024. And here's the really strong principle. Judgment from God will ultimately come against anyone who violates his holiness. You agree with that? It's the truth. Judgment from God, it's hard to hear, will come against anyone who will violate his holiness. So that means something has to be done with those who violate God's holiness. Something has to happen for them. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 5. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. So the Philistines have just scored a major victory. They've won on the battlefield. They've done exactly what they intended to do. They killed the leaders of Israel. They've captured the Ark of the Covenant. And now they've taken it as a war trophy. And they carry it away to Ashdod, which is 19 miles to the south of where the battle was at. Now, Ashdod is one of the five major cities of the Philistine people. It's within the strip that we know today as the Gaza Strip. It's one of the five major cities there. They're only three miles from the Mediterranean coast. And the Ark of the Covenant is placed near this idol, Dagon, this big statue, inside this pagan temple structure. Now, to the ancient polytheist, meaning people who have many gods, to the ancient polytheist, this is just one more god to add to their trophy room. And for them, Dagon is recognized as this god of meteorology, small g, and the god of battle. So he's the god of weather, and he's the god of war. But what do we know about the Ark of the Covenant? We know that the Ark of the Covenant is the visible symbol of God's presence on earth. God actually goes out of his way to call it his throne, if you will, with Moses. And he says to Moses, when I meet with you, it will be above the ark lid where the two cherubim are at, and it will serve as a visible reminder, Moses, of my physical presence on earth. And they're taking that item, and they're placing it inside the stronghold of Dagon, which absolutely does this. It reflects for you and I living in the modern world the Philistine understanding of theology their understanding of the theological dimension. Here's what their thinking is. The Philistines believe that Yahweh is inferior to Dagon and that Dagon is superior because he just beat that God's people on the battlefield. So in their mind, it's fitting that Yahweh will forever be held as a prisoner, as a trophy in the house of Dagon. So God's throne, if you will, is placed near a large idol in order to diminish God, Yahweh, apparently in the same building, in the same temple that Samson had been held in many, many years before when Samson ended his life because he's held in the temple of Dagon at his death. Well, apparently they did a rebuild 
And that's now where we find God's throne. Verse 3. When the Ashdites, Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is one of the funnier passages in the Bible. Okay, what you're about to see here is it's just kind of hilarious here. So Dagon is found in this posture position of submission before the ark of God. His face is to the ground. And the people of Ashdod, they have to help their God back up onto his little pedestal. That's a pretty weak God when you've got to pick your God up off the ground and put him back on his pedestal. Now catch that. He's inside his own temple, and he cannot lift his face out of the dirt. And then the exact same humiliating circumstance happens again the next morning, which shows everybody who's reading this, that wasn't an accident then. It wasn't like there was some vibration in the earth. It happened two days in a row. So Dagon, this god, small g, is not only lying flat before the ark of God, this time the statue's hands and head is cut off. And in the ancient world, decapitation of your enemy was the way to demonstrate superior authority over your conquered enemy. And everybody knows that. So on the first day, this formerly conquering God, small g, Dagon, is humiliated. And the next day, he's executed in his own stronghold. And check what you know about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the visible image of God in the Old Testament. And God willingly allows himself to be taken captive into the enemy's stronghold in order to reveal that he is actually the conqueror. So this holy God provides a demonstration of astounding power over the most feared adversary of their day. So first, it's a ritual execution of their God. And next, after decapitating Dagon, the one true God, is turning his judgment against those individuals who are worshiping false gods. Verse 6, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand, speaking of God, his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. Now, apparently what happens here, if you read forward in the stories, you find that an infestation of rats or mice comes across their countryside, ravishes their corn crops, their wheat crops, destroys their economy. And what do we know about rats? We know that rats bring with them plagues because the bubonic plague is associated with rats. And if that's what this is, what we understand about the bubonic plague is that it causes swelling of the lymph nodes, especially under the armpits, and if you will, in the nether regions of your body. It's very, very uncomfortable. So let me show you the two Hebrew words in your notes this morning that are associated with what has just been said. The first one is shamane, 
And this is the word that's associated with God ravaging them. Shamane is to stun them. So not just like eyes glazed over, but eyes glazed over like paralyzed, like what in the world is happening to us? They cannot associate in their mind what has happened so suddenly to them, it actually cripples them, and then it's associated with the word a fall, which is the word for tumors, which means a swelling, and a specific swelling in a specific area. Now, this is consistent with what God has done in the past, because God had said to the people of Israel, you disobey me, and I'm going to do to you what I did to the Egyptians at one point. Deuteronomy 28, look with me on the screen. Verse 27, the Lord will smite you with boil, with the boils of Egypt, and with tumors, and with the scab, and with the itch. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Like, come on. From which you cannot be healed. Now, suffice it to say, they're getting tumors, these swellings, if you will in places that make it very uncomfortable to sit. In other words, you don't want to go being horseback riding when you've got this problem. This is really, really uncomfortable. And God knows us, and God built us, and He knows how to get our attention, and physical discomfort really gets our attention, especially if you've got swelling down below. Now, whatever the cause of it is, whether it's the bubonic plague early or some other form that God sent to them, the consensus by the people at this time is this terrifying plague is the hand of the Lord. Look what they say, verse 7. His hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. So the Philistines come to the conclusion that it's because of the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And they're not wrong. That's exactly why this is happening to them. So they think that by removing the ark, the people of Ashdod will begin to heal. And so they get their seers together. They get their lords of the Philistines together, and they agree, I know what we'll do. Let's send the ark to Gath, which is about 12 miles away, east of Ashdod. Verse 8, they said, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Over to verse 9, after they had brought it around... The hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great confusion, and he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, they had brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. Have you guys ever played hot potato? <laughs> I don't want it, you take it. I don't want it, you take it. The thing they wanted so bad that they would go to battle for and were thrilled to capture. It's the very thing that they don't want. And they've got the exact same problem in Ashdod, in Gath, and in Ekron. Verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. Pay attention to that phrase, deadly confusion. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. I think we would mostly probably agree that emotional trauma can be as severe as physical trauma. 
the emotional plague that they're going through is as severe as the physical plague. And we're told that the city is being thrown into massive, megas, it says, megas panic. Because they know exactly what God did to the Egyptians. Chapter 4, we understood that the Philistines were very aware of what the Lord brought against Egypt, and now they're thinking it's their turn. And they don't want their firstborn to be dying if they have to go through all the plagues. They want to get rid of this thing. And so they've learned from history, okay, this is not cool. We don't want to have to repeat this. We've already had three plagues, and it's decimated their finances. It's decimated their population. It's decimating their crops. And so they come to the conclusion, we're out. We surrender. What do we have to do to undo this? So just like with the Egyptians, the plagues are actually God bringing judgment against their gods, small g. And the five rulers of the five major cities say, okay, let's get rid of the ark. So verse 12, it says this, pay very close attention. The cry of the city went up to heaven. How desperate does a pagan have to be to no longer pray to their God, small g, but begin crying out to the God of heaven? They're in a really desperate place. They've come to this place of surrender because they're recognizing that God is way greater than our powerless idols. Verse 1, chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord had been brought in the country of the Philistines, Seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? See the name change there? It's no longer the ark of God. Now it's the ark of Yahweh. How do they know his name? What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering, and then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. After seven months, would you wait seven months? I wouldn't wait seven months. Like, get that thing out of here now. So they're waiting seven months, and they finally make this decision to send it back. But church, consider what is transpiring in the intervening time during the seven months. Everyone has come to the conclusion and everyone acknowledges, yeah, that one true God, Yahweh, he's not been defeated. He's not being held captive. If anything, he's completely in control. Even though his ark, the visible representation of God on earth, has been captured and has been taken into the depths, the enemy's lair, that God is still powerful. We'll come back to that. So the priests conclude they have to placate Yahweh in some way. Clearly, what they're understanding they have to do is provide a guilt offering for what they've done. How do you compensate God for the wrong that you've done? Verse 4, they, then they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? Now, that is a great question. What do you do if you've ticked off God? 
If you stand as a person in rebellion against the holy, holy, holy God, how do you get back to the place where you're restored or in the first place become one who is in a restoration relationship with him? If you've offended the holy God of all the earth, what do you do? Obviously, they know something is wrong and they know something has to be done to set things right with God. So what they do, they come up with their own form of a guilt offering. Verse 4, part B. And they said, five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines for one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. <laughs> this is really remarkable because what they've decided to do is do these reproductions of five golden rats and five golden images of a portion of your body, of the human anatomy that is absolutely unclean. Tumors. And so they put these ritually detestable animals combined with these rats, with these tumors, and they decide that'll be a good offering to get God's attention. And they've been suffering this loss of finances and this loss of sleep and the loss of mobility. Because when you've got tumors, you don't even want to walk. And they've been threatened with financial disaster. And so they desperately need to remove these plagues. And in turn, they decide what they need to do is give glory to God. If you're a church person, you're probably very familiar with this verse that says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Tracking with me on that? So that verse is actually saying everyone that's ever been created on the surface of the earth, under the earth, and in heaven will give glory to God. Some of them will be doing it by force. Some of them will bow the knee unwillingly. But God says there's a day coming when everyone will give glory to Jesus to the glory of God the Father, they will bow the knee. You're looking at individuals here who do not want to acknowledge it, but by force they're acknowledging, yep, we have got to deal with this God and we have to give him an offering. So make no mistake, this is their attempt to acknowledge God's lordship, even though it's really awkward in the way that they do it. And their priests say, you, you don't want to wait on this, verse six, and why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he had severely dealt with them. Did they not allow the people to go and they departed? Did these guys really know their Old Testament history. Pagans living in another land, but they know exactly what God did to Egypt. They're very aware of history and they know that they have to deal with this issue and we don't want that. So this really fascinating solution comes up. Verse 7. Now, therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord. There it is again, Yahweh. They're acknowledging his covenant name. Take the ark of Yahweh and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch. If it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, 
then he, meaning God, he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Somehow, they know God's covenant name. They know the name Yahweh, and they're willing to speak it out loud. Now, if you have ever had experience with farm animals, you know what a huge challenge this is. Two mama cows who have never had a yoke on them, they've only raised calves, and they're not accustomed to pulling a cart, and they've got young calves back in the barn, and they're going to be hooked up to this cart, and everybody's going to watch to see if they go towards Israel or if they turn around and they go right back to their calves because their calves are going to be bleating and calling out for them because they want to be nursed. So this is a really, really interesting test that they've come up with. So they've concluded if, if those two mama cows press forward, this has to be of the God of Israel. And that's exactly what they do. Mooing as they go, they go straight forward. Verse 12, the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. These guys are doing everything wrong from a Levitical standpoint. And they have no idea. They don't even care. They don't know what they don't know. God never asked for golden rats. And God never asked for golden tumors. And he never instructed them to transport the Ark of the Covenant in a cart pulled by a couple cows, which is forbidden, by the way, in Numbers chapter 7. But he allows it. And these guys really want a sign. Now, Beth Shemesh is just inside the Israelite territory, just on the other side of the border. And so against all natural instincts, these two mama cows go exactly into Israel, right to this valley. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite, and stood there where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it in which were the articles of gold. So this large outcropping of rock, a flat surface, is going to serve as the backdrop for what happens next. So since wheat is grown in the valley where things are well irrigated and the water comes down the hills and feeds the crops and the wheat is harvested in June in Israel. So this is obviously the later part of June. It's understandable that this cart is arriving in this valley to the harvesters before it ever makes it to the city. And when the workers in the field see it, everybody stops what they're doing. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant has come back to us and they begin celebrating and Everybody is thrilled to have the Ark of the Covenant of God back, and that could be a really good ending, but it's not, because there's a little bit more here. Only Levites are permitted to handle the Ark of the Covenant in any fashion whatsoever, 
And God was very specific that the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be concealed. And so God instructed that seal skins would be wrapped around the Ark whenever it was taken out of the temple or tabernacle so that the people could not look upon it. But these guys haven't learned their lesson yet. And far from concealing the Ark, they display it and they put it on a large rock platform for everybody to see and then they look inside the ark, and no one except the high priest and the Kohathites are permitted to even see the exterior of the ark, much less touch it or look inside. However, they do just the opposite. Verse 19, he struck down some of the men of the Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people, 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. So apparently they didn't see the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and didn't know you're not supposed to look inside the ark. Even Steven Spielberg knows you don't look in the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to get a melty face if you do. But they do it anyways. And God had been very specific in the book of Numbers to say they shouldn't even look at it or they're going to die. Verse 20, they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. Now the number 50,070 men defies logic because Beth Shemesh is not that big of a city. So there's a lot of people apparently flocking to this site to see the Ark of the Covenant. But because people have struggled so much with that number over time, over decades and hundreds and hundreds of years, individuals arrived at the conclusion that can't be right. That must be a misinterpretation. So even the copy of the NIV Bible, the New International Version, records 70 men looked inside. But all the ancient documents support the number 50,070. All the ancient manuscripts, they all attest to that number. Therefore, here's what I'm going to say, just let the number be what it is. Because here's the reality. Whether it's 170 or 50,070, it is a shameless disregard for the holiness of God. And so in this case, it brings swift judgment from God. Regardless of who the person is, if they violate God's holiness, there's going to be judgment. Verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Really interesting, there's no P.S. at the end of that. Like, hey, don't look inside, by the way. No instructions, no details. This is what he did to us. Just come and get it and take it, please. Now, curious, Jerim, why this place rather than the tabernacle? Had individuals come up to me after the 9 o'clock service and say, oh, I'm confused about that tabernacle detail. Remember when we were in the book of Numbers and we looked at the tabernacle and it was essentially a tent-type structure? And so when they moved as a people, they would take the tabernacle with them. It was portable. Eventually, the temple would be built by King Solomon. But this is before that. The tabernacle at this point was at Shiloh. What happened at Shiloh? The Philistines slaughtered Israel to the degree that they wiped them out and everybody was in mourning. And it appears most historians arrived at this conclusion 
It appears that they also destroyed the tabernacle at that point when they took the Ark of the Covenant as hostage. And apparently that seems to be what's going on if you're just going to play detective there. Read it again, verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the Ark of the Lord from that day, from the day that the Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, The time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the men of Kiriath, they they accept the author, the offer, and and they come and they pick up the ark. That it's taken to Kiriath and not back to Shiloh tells you something terrible happened at Shiloh. The tabernacle likely doesn't exist, so they have to take it to somebody's house. Now, there's no real detail regarding Abinadab or Eliezer, but think this through. If you have the Ark of the Covenant in your living room for 20 years, what are the chances that you're going to be highly blessed of God? Maybe your hair is going to grow again. Maybe your nails are going to get longer and thicker. Maybe there's going to be a slight hum coming from your living room and you have to tell the kids to keep their feet off the table. Maybe there's a light that's always glowing. And if you think I'm joking, 2 Samuel chapter 6 says some of those very things are actually going on at Abinadab's house. God greatly blesses this guy, but we'll come back to that another time. Just hold that thought. Everything that you've heard so far has been enormous detail, and we're almost done. But here's the shift. What I'm seeing here is so incredibly encouraging because there has been a national change of heart taking place. As these 20 years go by, they're no longer mourning because of the heavy blow God had dealt against the 50,070 men. They're now lamenting after God. And they're seeking God's favor, and they're mourning and seeking the Lord. And that change of heart is not lost on Samuel. And he seizes the opportunity, and he leads his nation in a spiritual cleansing. Verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone, And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now, the purging is one thing. But this nation has to recommit themselves to God. So Samuel begins to simply proclaim to them promises that God had made all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. This is what he said. Look with me. I'll remind you of this. We saw this months ago. Verse 1, chapter 28. It shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God... And then he comes up with a laundry list, all the things that he will do with them. If you get down to verse 7, look at what God said. The Lord said, He shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. And he's talking about routing their enemies. So Samuel comes on the scene. And the priesthood is in a shambles. And the nation is defeated, and God's glory has departed from them. And what do good leaders do when good leaders come on the scene? Good leaders put forth a challenge, 
And they call God's people to act like God's people. And what Samuel is asking them to do is light years away from the culture that they've been in. He's calling them to deal with the Ashtoreth poles and with the Baal statues and act like God's people and treat God as holy. Verse 4, so the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and served the Lord alone. I don't know about you, but that smells like the seeds of revival to me. Who was Baal to these people? But Baal, think back to the book of Leviticus when we looked at that. Baal is the God, small g, of fertility and the God of the storms. Dagon, he's the God of war. Ashtaroth, she's the goddess of sexual fertility. God has dismantled all three of those gods, small g, before the eyes of the people, saying those things are nothing. You don't want to reproduce when you have tumors. Your crops have been destroyed, and the God of the storm is about to show himself. Watch with me in verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel Shaphat, the sons of Israel at Mizpah, he judged, not in the way of a judicial ruling, but in the way of delivering, because that's what the word Shaphat means. Now, all Israel doesn't necessarily mean all millions of them showed up for this, but probably the leaders of their tribes. And we've seen the most common role of a judge during this period of time is to be a deliverer like Moses, like Gideon, like Samson. Well, in Samuel's case, he's taken on the role of more of a prophet and a priest. If we would call him a title, we would say, this guy's like a national pastor at this point. And because of these actions... Samuel transitions and becomes the most revered leader in the history of Israel since Moses, which took my mind to this thought in Proverbs 29. What does Proverbs 29.2 say? It's a promise from God. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Amen? It's true. When the righteous are in authority, people are at peace. People are, are comfortable. They're, they're celebrating. So what you find Samuel doing is he's implementing these great leadership tactics. The nation is getting back on track. Verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God. Catch that. The Lord our God. He's our God. Don't cease to cry to him, to the Lord, our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What a total change of heart. It makes sense that they're afraid because they were horribly defeated in the last two battles with the Philistines. What a change from what you and I have seen in the past in the judges. So Israel's gathered for this prayer meeting. They think revival's in the air. The word reaches the Philistines. The Philistines think they're actually gathering for war, so they launch a preemptive counterattack. 
And one leader of God steps up on the scene and calls God's people back and hope is restored. And I want you to see it's their focus that is actually crucial to the story. Their focus is back on God's capacity to deliver. Verse 8, cry to the Lord our God for us that he may save us. So they have genuine faith in the power of God to save and to restore. Verse 9 lands the plane for us. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. So while the time of prayer is still going on and the sacrifice is still happening, the enemy shows up in their backyard. And in response, the God of thunder responds audibly and scares the bejeebers out of the Philistines. And we're told in the Bible that God has an audible voice that sounds like thunder. Here's an example of that from Psalm 29.3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. Well, the Philistines hear this roaring thunder, and it's rolling, and it continues to increase, and they immediately go into uh-oh mode because they had messed with the God of Israel when they took the Ark of the Covenant and that had been 20 years earlier, and they seem to have forgotten, but now they're in panic mode, and the Philistines go into full retreat, and Israel pursues, and the Philistines never enter Israel again. And that would be a really good place to end, but it's not. <laughs> Four more minutes. So everything you've heard leads to these four minutes. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Because a deliverance like that, you don't want that to escape into oblivion. And so around the nation today in the United States of America, we've erected stone memorials after there's been a mighty victory. We have war monuments. This is exactly what they've done. They put up a war monument because of what God did for them. And Samuel's recognizing they need to remember this. So he says, this is going to be called an Ebenezer, which means stone of help. Verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. What a day. Samuel accomplishes with one prayer what Samson could not do in 20 years. God has delivered them from the hand of the Philistines, and from this day forward, they keep their distance, and ultimately, King David will take them out. Now, 
in all this action that you've just seen. God has expressly shown that Dagon is not the God over the crops and that Ashtaroth is not the goddess of reproduction. And God has expressly shown that Baal is not the God of the storms. The Lord God alone is the God of thunder. And he will not bow his knee to anyone. Amen? Amen. Yet. This holy, holy, holy God allows himself to be taken captive as a war trophy. And he's placed in the depths of Dagon's temple. And in the Old Testament, we understand that the ark is the visible image of God's presence on earth. And he's taken into the enemy's lair. And from there, he conquers in the New Testament. Church, who is the visible image of the living God? Yeah, you know the answer. It's the Jesus answer. Look at me on the screen. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. But on a day when it seems the enemy has won and they take him captive and they crucify him and all the powers of the world and all the forces of hell believe that they have killed God and he is taken deep into the enemy's stronghold. It's from the depths of the stronghold that he conquers and he destroys the power of death because that's what Jesus does. Even though he is taken by the enemy and he's led captive into the enemy's stronghold, he comes out the other side and that's called resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why Jesus said to John what he did in John chapter 1. Look at this. I was dead. Behold, I was dead. And I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. And I have the keys of hell. The strongest weapon that Satan holds is the keys of eternal death. And if you've taken your enemy's weapon, you've taken everything that they have. And the king of eternal life took those keys because God always wins. God always conquers, even the most fearsome adversary, even the freaking king of fear, which is known as death. And he promises, because he defeats death, you no longer have to fear death because of what Jesus did for you. So my God, my God, your God, is the living ark of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we recognize clearly what you've done for us, how you allowed yourself to be taken captive, to demonstrate to anyone who's paying attention that death is powerless to hold you in its grips. So we recognize as your followers the awesomeness, the majesty of what you've done, that you didn't just forgive us of our sins, but you allow us to have eternal life. We praise you and thank you. You are holy, holy, holy. And I wish, Father, I pray, I beg, and I plead 
that that would translate as a reality into our lives so that we would represent you well in this world that we walk before because they desperately need to know there is hope. So use us, Father. Use us to speak into the lives of people who are without hope that we might be bold to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his majestic name and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.